Good to be in the room this morning. Good to see your smiling faces and just so much joy. Amazing. Uh, It amazes me because, well, we've been spoiled for a while here um, and we had an elongated fall, didn't we? Like, I mean, the weather stuck around for a while and I really appreciated that. Uh, And then I think there was a time last week where it was 60 degrees one day and the next day it was zero. Like I had to scrape off my car. So um, essentially I'm going to go into hibernation after today and I'll see you guys in March. So um, I hate the cold, not any fun, uh, not something I like to mess with. So this is my farewell message. Uh, I can't stand it anymore. No, uh, in all seriousness, I can't stand cold, but I figured out ways to cope with the cold. So one, wool socks. They're super helpful. Uh, Buy them. They're very cheap. TJ Maxx, Marshalls, they're good to go. So that's helped me cope with the cold. And then things like this. Honestly, the ugly sweaters, the holiday season, celebrating Jesus' birthday has helped me say, okay, the winter's not all that bad until February. So until then... Uh, We're going to continue on in our Advent series this morning. Uh, Advent simply means coming or arrival. Uh, We're celebrating the arrival of Jesus, God with us. And and in in that celebration, in King Jesus, the benefits of that arrival. And and those benefits are peace, hope, love, and joy. And so we've been preaching through those four specific benefits. And today, we get to talk about love. Um, Now... If I'd, I'd like to invite you, as we talk about love, to open your Bibles to that passage that was just read, 1 John chapter 3. The easiest way to get there is to flip to the last book in your Bible, which is Revelation, and then flip back a couple pages, and you'll find 1 John there, uh, chapter 3. Now, as we talk about love, there's some of us in the room, and a lot of us are like, man, I understand love. I, I get it. I get what love is. And then some of us are like, Man, I'm an expert. I saw the notebook. I've, I've seen the notebook. I've, ex, I've experienced how to lose a guy in 10 days, sleepless, sleepless in Seattle, and pretty woman. So some of us ladies are like, yeah, but this dude's not getting that. He hasn't seen those movies yet, and that's okay. That's okay. We're going to help him out a little bit um, from the romantic comedy, comedy section and, and, and try to figure out what love really is and Most of us, when we think of love, though, we think of this thing that just basically we fall deeply into our feelings and it causes us to do something crazy. Now, there's there's this moment where we're like, okay, love is when our feelings are just starting to well up inside of us and we get swept off our feet and we found the person, the perfect person that fits all of my desires and everything I want. Just like what the movies show us, right? Like, that's how we define love. And and for those of us who are Bachelor fans, I'm not one of them necessarily. I have watched two seasons. However, for those of us in the room who do like to watch that show, um, to look at the relationships post-show is actually a, a, a sad reality. Very few of those relationships end up in a lasting marriage. Most of them actually don't. Out of the 30 seasons that they've had of The Bachelor and Bachelorette, actually, Only six of those couples are still together right now. Somewhere in the midst of this romantic, extravagant love, it just faded away after life started to hit them, right? And so a lot of our definition about love is actually based on circumstances and conditions. So so when a person doesn't meet those expectations or the conditions that we have on them, we start to disregard our love for them and 
show them the door. Or even sometimes that circumstantial love comes into play with our kids. What we start to think through with our children is, what do I want? What do I desire? And we choose those things rather than saying, what's best for the ones that I love? Amen? So City Light, our definition of love and understanding of love has to be defined by God and his word. And so as we start to see that, we all long for love, right? Our hearts long to be loved and to love someone else. However, I really don't think we have a good understanding of what love really is. So as we look at our text this morning, we're going to be given a glimpse of God's love and how he defines that, but then also what the implications are for us and how we ought to love as well. And so in our first verse here, in the first section, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given us. Now, this letter that we're looking at is written by the disciple John, which is Jesus' disciple. Um, John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that amazing that he would call himself, he's the, 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 the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like some would even say that this dude is a love expert, a God love expert. If you look at him, he's just it's what he talks about. That's what he, he bleeds out that. Some of the most famous verses on love are from the Apostle John. In fact, he, God so loved the world, right? You, you know, we know that verse. Uh, God is love. Again, another John quote. Or the, the situation of the scene when, when Jesus encounters Peter right before his resurrection. It says, Peter, do you love me? That's John. John knows love and knows love well. And so when he writes this letter, it's actually a very hard time for the church. It's in a time period. It's about 95 A.D. Um, Persecution is rampant, as we've talked about before. But even in, in the midst of all of that, false truths are being taught to the church. And false truths are being taught to the world around them. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, as John looks out into the church and say, man, what do I say to him? He starts to write these letters to give them truth that matters and the truth that they need to stand on. And so his point of emphasis in this particular one, the truth that he wants to emphasize is the father's love. So when he says, see what kind of love the father has for us, it's not this monotone thing where he's like, see, see this love that the father has for us. No, 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 no. That's not what he's doing. He said, it's a proclamation of God's love. He says, don't you see this amazing love that God the Father has for us? Don't you see it? You see how beautiful it is? In that word see here, in its original language, if we were to give it justice, our language can't permit the language that he's trying to use here. It's a, it's a knowing. That seeing is not just a glimpse. It's a, it's a deep utter knowing, a knowing that's more like God's knowing and less like our knowing. There's a difference between knowing about something and knowing something. Amen? And so I'm going to give you an example of that. So I could tell you, and it's true, I know the former best player in the world up until he retired last year, Kobe Bryant. I know him really well. I know that he grew up in Italy He speaks multiple languages, like he's very eloquent. Uh, He went to high school in Philadelphia. In his senior prom, he went to prom with the singer known as Brandy. I know that when he graduated high school, he entered the NBA draft, was drafted by the Charlotte Hornets, and then was immediately traded to the Los Angeles Lakers. 
Upon his arrival with the Lakers, he began a championship run with them several years later and still maintains more championships than LeBron James. Okay? He's the second highest single game scorer of all time. And he's actually the first highest that we have recorded on film. Dude's a legit ball player. And in his final game, so he's old, he's played for 20 years, he scored 60 points, and they won. Best player in the world, just to put that out there, okay? He's got two daughters, he's got a wife, he's got a big house, he lives in Southern California. I'd say I know the dude pretty well, right? Now, if I went to Southern California right now where he lives and stepped into a restaurant and saw my dude sitting there and I was like, hey, bro, what's up? How's it going? Can I, can, I, can I share the seat with you? Can I, can I sit here and have a meal with you? What do you think he's going to say to me? What do you think Kobe Bryant's going to say to me? I'll tell you. I'll let you know. He's going to say, dude, I don't even know you and you don't know me. You better step back. You better get back right now. Dude does not know me. I don't know him. And the sad reality, many of us, most of us, the church today, people that call themselves Christians who follow God, know God in this fashion, like I know facts about Kobe. What we think is that we know God because we know a ton of facts about him, or we we know a lot of our Bible stories, and, and we have these deep cerebral thoughts about theology, but at the end of the day, there's no deep, intimate knowledge of the God who loves us. There's no knowledge that comes from spending time with him, but spending time knowing things about him. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, he records a conversation between Jesus and his disciples where Jesus says to them, no one comes to the Father but by me. And then after that, his disciple Philip, his disciple says, show us the Father and that will be enough. And what Jesus' response was to him, oh, Philly, Phil. No, he didn't say that. But but he did approach the dude like, okay, here's the deal, man. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If we want to know the Father and his love, it has to be seen in the Son. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to know the Father, if you want to know him intimately, you got to know Jesus. You got to know him. Before I get into implications, though, I want to address some of us in the crowd when I mention Father in regards to God. Because some of us in the room, I room, I know, I know, I know, know personally, when we hear the word, it doesn't necessarily have a good connotation. And so we we have we have this tendency to take what our earthly father has done, said, or is about, and imprint them on God the Father and His actions and His love. I have that tendency. I definitely have that tendency. We all wrestle through that, and I've. Because here's the deal, I never felt like my dad loved me all that much. I never thought that I was good enough for him. I never felt like he was proud of me. He never really said it. I didn't believe that he loved me or cared about me unless it was convenient or didn't intervene with what I perceived that he really loved. Look at me. Look at me right here. That's not our one true God. That's not who he is. His love for you goes deeper than anything you can do. His love goes deeper than anything that you are. His his love is offered to you freely. It's not based on your achievements. It's not based on some sort of mutual beneficial relationship. He loves you because he loves you. 
He loves you from a choosing love, and He chose to love you with everything He has. Everything He has. He's not your earthly Father. He is your heavenly Father. So let me show you on the next page here, chapter 4 and 3, and, uh, yeah, 1 John chapter 4. In verse 9 and 10, he says something very specific to illustrate this for us. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In order to see the father as he is, we must look to the Son. When Jesus came in his first advent, when he came with a deep, affectionate love for us, he came as propitiation, or in other words, he came as the payment for our sin. He took the cross in God's wrath. If that's not love, I don't know what is. For someone to die in your place and take on your punishment, that is love. That's the kind of loving father that we have, a father that would give his own life. For us, this love is, is not a response to our love at all. It just comes out of the heart of God to love us. Not in a mutual benefit between us. No, God's love is one directional. It came, his love came down to us from him. His love came down to us from him. Down. This was the most compelling truth for me when I first came to faith. It was so compelling that, that not only God is God and King of the universe and creator of all things, but that he's a loving, dependable, and gracious father. He endured pain, torture, and humiliation just so that I can have the opportunity to love him. It's a beautiful love. Isn't that a scandalous love? Like it doesn't make any sense. It's more truer, more deeper than any love that we experience here in any love that we can ever see in Hollywood or see in The Bachelorette. Amen? This love reaches out to the undeserving people. This love comes from the cross of Jesus and shows us very clearly the love of the Father. So why does this matter, though? I'm glad you asked. If we look back in our book, in chapter 3, go ahead and flip back again. Uh, Verse 1 again, and here's what this love says. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So one of the implications of this love is it defines who we are. This love of the Father defines who we are. Our identity, who we are, the things that define us is the love of the Father. And it declares us, you and me, God's children. Now I've heard it said many times, We are all God's children. Now, while I respect the sentiment, it's not true. It's just not true. This this passage is actually flipping that on its head and saying the opposite. It's saying that if you know Jesus, you are a child of God. You have passed from death to life. Your sins are no longer counted against you. They are forgiven. You are now a co-heir with Christ. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that love and the fact that we become children? This is how you get the inheritance that Austin talked about last week when he was speaking of our hope. We don't have to hope as strangers or slaves. God has brought us hope 
through his love and his promises for eternity. Now, in Ephesians 2, though, it does say that we were enemies of God before we have been saved by grace. All of mankind have sinned against God. And in essence, we've orphaned ourselves because we've broken the law of God. We've sinned against a good and holy God. So, although everyone in the world is God's creation, not everyone is his child. Adoption comes through faith in Jesus alone. And that's when we become his child. That's the moment. Now, what this also means, if if God is... Is, is your dad or Jesus is your daddy, people around you should look at you differently, should see things different about you. So 2 Corinthians 5.13 puts it this way. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So literally, translation, here's what he's saying here. If we act a little crazy and people, we appear to be out of our mind to the world, then we're actually following the love of a father. Think about it this way. We are a strange group of people, okay? It doesn't make sense to the world that you would take 10% of your finances and give it away without any expectation of any kind of physical or monetary return. That's weird, okay? It's strange that you would give your time and talent without a wage. Like, that is weird. To the world, we are out of our mind. You are out of your mind when you come into a place every single week and sing a bunch of songs to a God that you can't see, hear preaching from a Bible that's over 2,000 years old, and start to love people that you don't even know. That's strange. But that's also what it looks like to understand the love of the Father. Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, though. What it doesn't mean is that if you're a Christian, you're better than everybody else. In fact, it just means that you're better off. The reason why I say that is because how can you say that you're better than someone when the love that's been lavished upon you was given to you, not because you've earned it, because it was a gift. There wasn't something in me that would cause God to love me, but he chose to do so anyway. Every other love in the world is earned by relational position, by status, or by merit. But in this particular love, we're given position. We're given status, and that merit portion was already done for us. It was taken care of. I say this because we are all entering into, actually we're well into the holiday season. And I'm convinced of something. I say this every year because I am thoroughly convinced of it every year. That the reason why we have holidays is because Jesus wants us to experience what it's like to love us. Now, here's what I mean by that. Most of us in the room are going to be with family. And when we're with family, there's, there's a group of people that we either don't see very often or this is the only time of the year that we actually see them. And inevitably, there is that one person who makes everything awkward. They, they're the person that's just so difficult to love in that day. You're like, why did you even come? And I'm telling you right now, if you're sitting here like, I don't even know who that is. Well, that's probably you. You better be careful. I'm just saying, I'm not saying it is. I said probably, but there's inevitably that person, right? And I think God's given us this time of celebration that we might know his heart well, because 
He gives us the opportunity to love the unlovable or the person in our family that's hard to love. The reason he does this is because we're those people. We're his knucklehead kids that I believe at times he's sitting there like, mm-mm, mm-mm, why you do that? But because he has such a great, joyful love for us, he's able to smile anyway in the midst of his children acting up. Amen? So there's proper responses to this love that comes, to being a, comes from being a child of God. So our passage gives us two of them. I'm going to read chapter, verses 2 and 3, and then we'll talk about it. Beloved, we are God's children now, 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 and, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So the first response of being a child of God is hope. The very first response is hope. Pastor Austin last week just killed the game when it comes to hope. Like, one of the best things I've ever heard. It was excellent. If you weren't here last week, we do got an app. It's called City Light Lincoln. Download the app. Listen to the podcast. Dude does an excellent job of showing us how we persevere in this life through the hope that we have in Jesus. Now, John, though, in our book here, gives us actually some details of what that hope might look like. In Jesus' second advent, when he, when he comes for us, it says that Christ appears, we will be like him, meaning that we'll be glorified like him. Like we'll have glorified personhood with Jesus. We won't have sin anymore. We won't be with pain anymore. We, will, we won't have dad bod. Um, Austin, his height won't matter anymore. It'll be okay. Like dew can reach the pedals when that happens, okay? My balding that's perpetual... It's no more. I won't have to worry about it anymore. There won't be any weakness, no imperfections, no hurt, no pain, no suffering. What a wonderful father, right? What a wonderful father that his love would give us a promise of a wonderful future that we might behold. Amen? Where people who are tall are now short, and those who are short, well... It doesn't matter anymore. Amen? All right. So to summarize hope, though, Austin did a really great job last week to summarize hope. Here's what he said. He said, our faith is in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, his first advent, his first coming. But our hope is in the fact that Jesus is coming back to set all things right, which is his second advent, his second coming. This hope will not disappoint is what he said. But one thing I struggle with, one thing that I struggle with in this life particularly, is the expectation of disappointment. I assume something bad's going to happen. I don't believe that something good is going to happen. So a few months ago, Austin and I went to a conference, and we were hanging out with a, a pastor friend of ours, lovely man. So we're sitting there talking, having casual conversation, or at least I thought it was. And uh, he stops and looks at me and says, let me press in a little bit. Why do you always assume that something bad's going to happen? Are you, it seems like in our conversation, every time we talk about something, you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. And I was like, oh. Now, some of us would be like, well, that's just pessimism. It's okay. Or some of us say, well, he's a realist, okay? Just give him a break. But my friend being loving and wanting to serve me in that moment did not just brush it off as just, this is just the way it is. 
And so what he did, he pressed a little bit deeper, and he says, why do you suppose you assume the worst? And so my response was simply, I have no idea. And um, thanks for making me go deeper than I wanted. So appreciate that. Counseling session over. We're done. See you later. So I went about my day, didn't think two thoughts about it anymore. And then we come to the evening of that particular conference. And when we're in that evening, he starts singing a song called Good, Good Father. It's a beautiful song. And as he's singing, he takes this moment and pauses and challenges us to pray. He says, pray and listen to the lyrics about how good our Father is. And so I said, okay, I'm going to respond to that. I'm going to start praying. And before you know it, as common with me and unlike our pastor, Austin, I just start bawling. Like I'm just crying. Tears are falling down my face because I was praying. And I said, God, why am I like that? Why do I think that something terrible is going to happen? And what he reminded me is that that's a part of my experience. Is that my earthly father would promise things and it would not be fulfilled. And see, my hope was not in God. My hope was in the experience of imperfect people and not the perfect father who loves me. What I have failed to do is look at God's inventory and record in my life and see how good he's been to me and how he has come through in every moment. And see, what I did, though, is I I kept something from him. In all of my life, I kept something from him, and that thing that I kept from him was trust. I didn't trust him. I didn't trust that he was good. I didn't trust that he would protect me. And so I I kept trust in my heart and said, you know what? I'm going to make sure I can't be hurt by this life. I'm going to make sure that I can't be disappointed by this life. And I didn't really trust him. So in the moment with my friends singing and we're singing about the good, good father, God reminds me, he, he, not audibly, but he reminds me in my head and he says here, he says, Mo, don't you know that I love you? Don't you know I have your best in mind with everything that you're going to do? Don't you know that I am for you? Don't you know that you're not alone, but I'm with you? Don't you know that I have a rich, eternal plan for you to be with me? Our first response as children of God is to live in light of the hope of our loving Father that he's given to us as a promise that will be fulfilled. Amen? So the second response to being loved children of God is is holiness. We see that in the third verse there. It says, everyone who thus hopes in him, Jesus, hopes in him, Jesus, purifies himself as is pure. Amen? Now, now when we see that, though, because it says purify himself, that's confusing, right? So some of us in the room are like, see, I told you. I told you the other day that I got to work for my salvation. I told you the other day I got to clean myself up before I come to God. And it says it right here. God says that I got to do this stuff to please him. I knew it was coming. I knew that we were going to get there at some point. I just want to say something to you real quick. Slow your roll. Slow your roll. We've established earlier that God's love is not merited. It's not based on conditions. It's not based on what we do, but who we belong to. Our natural posture, though, is my effort, my work, my faith, my response, and my obedience to keep God's love and, good, and keep in his good graces. For some reason, we like the idea that the more I do for God, the more he loves me. 
This is not what this is saying. This is, that's contrary to what this is saying. We can't pay God back for love that was paid for for us. Amen? We can't. Jesus did it already. He paid the price. In fact, we can take a look uh, at the purifies himself and what it means in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3. Here's what it says. It says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Holiness or purity of life is not works to obtain or keep or maintain the love of God. This isn't an exercise of moralism. Be good for goodness sake for God's proverbial nice list. That's, that's not what this is. It's not a demand to bat a thousand even. Every single day just making sure you be the right person. If you notice in verse 7 and 8, the word he used was practice. It's saying that our life, if we are loved children of God, will move in the direction of holiness. John's trying to point us toward the trajectory of God and not sinful man. He's, he's causing us to ask the question in our hearts, is your life reflecting the heart of a loving father or is it reflecting the sin and death of this world? By Jesus coming to die and taking our place, resurrecting from the dead. He he freed us from the bondage of sin, meaning by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have freedom to practice righteousness in this life. God's grace isn't just a pardon from sin. It's actually the power that helps us to fight sin. Apart from God, there's no option to fight sin. But for the child of God, there's unlimited power to do so. So we have... We've been given this abundant love from a great father, the love of a heavenly father that rules and reigns, but not by rules and regulations. Because rules and regulations never motivate for long term. They just don't. The only thing that motivates permanently is a gracious love that can't be taken away. The only thing that motivates toward holiness is a loving, gracious God that can't be taken away. Now, after being asked the greatest commandment, after Jesus was asked that in Matthew 22, here's what his response was. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We are the objects of God's love, which allows us to love God. God loved you before you ever thought about loving him. So he he took care of the first commandment for you. And then the second command, the one that follows, says, love your neighbor as yourself. Most of God's commands about holiness, righteousness, morality actually don't have to do with God, but have to do with other people. They're not to appease God, but to serve people. Life after receiving this gracious love that our Father has given to us does not remove or dissolve good works, but it actually makes it focused on people. As we behold the beauty of God's love and grace, it transforms our heart to love deeply people, his people, the people whom he loves. You see, holiness is motivated by seeing the Father's love. 
It's not motivated by this is what you're supposed to do. It's not a to-do list to check off saying, okay, I read my Bible. Okay, I tithe. Okay, I prayed. Okay, I came to some church gatherings. It is seeing the beauty of the love that we've been given and having a proper response to it. When you see something so beautiful as the Father's love for you in spite of anything you have to offer, we can't help but to respond in peace, love, joy, and hope. 1 John 3.18 says it this way, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is a call for us to know God's love so deeply that we can't help but to, be, can't help but to not just talk about it, but to be about it. We will be about the Father's love. So let me give you a definition. Love is not defined the way we define it. The creator, the embodiment of love, must define his love. We can't do that. The way he does this is not by an individual benefit or a mutual trading of loves. His love never fades over time. It never gives up. It's not based on convenience. It's not based on an infatuation or a feeling deep down inside. Not that feelings are bad. They're good in their proper place. But it's not based on feelings, but based on the choice of the God who says, my love for you will remain forever. That's what love is. Love is defined by a gracious and sacrificial choice. It's not, it, it is a one-directional love without an expectation of reciprocation. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important. Love is defined by a gracious and sacrificial choice. It is one-directional without an expectation of reciprocation. That's what love is. So what does that look like for us, right? we got to say, okay, that's great. Now what? So if you're a college student in the room, most likely you're going home. And when you go home, there are potential friends, old friends, and potential old sin that will start to blind you of the love that you've seen in the Son of Jesus. Amen? And so, so what I want to remind you of, that this loving Father has given you such a love, such a, a glorious, beautiful love, that when you go home with your old friends, you can actually exemplify that love. You can reflect that love to them. And that sin that we're talking about, you're not a slave to it anymore. You don't have to be slave to it. You can fight it. You have the power of God unto salvation in you through his love. It doesn't have to be the same old, same old over Christmas break. For everyone else in the room, you will most likely be with family in town or out of town. And you will be celebrating King Jesus' birthday. How much of your celebration is indicative of the love that has been poured out on you? You'll be given an opportunity to show family members, and if you have them, your children, that we get to celebrate, we get to take joy in the most momentous moment in history since creation. Our king's coming to save us in the first advent from slavery, sin, and death, and freeing us with an inexhaustible loving grace. That's what we get to show our family. That's what we get to show our kids. How much of your celebration is indicative of that love? 
The best news in the world is that God loves you. That's the best news. Not because you're good, not because you're going to follow the rules, not because you're sitting here this morning, not because you're better than some other person. God love is relentlessly pursuing you despite anything that you've ever done or will do in this life. That's why he loves you, because it's relentless. You had nothing to do with it, but God loved you freely and extravagantly. I don't want you to miss these words. I don't want you to miss this this morning. I want us to be a people who really and deeply understand that God loves you. I don't care where you're at in life right now. I don't care if today is the first time you step foot in church today. I don't care if you've been to a church gathering a thousand times. The love of the Father does not have partiality. It's an inexhaustible, gracious love that he has for you. It's something that cannot be missed this morning, please. Would we be a church that understands the depth of God's love and are changed by it? We love because he first loved us. City Light, i got to ask you a question. Do you see what kind of love the Father has for us? Let's pray.